All right, good morning. Glad that you guys are here this morning. One more thing, uh, announcement is we're going to be giving back to God right now. And so if you are visiting with us, do not feel obligated to give. This is something that we do as a church family and, uh, and part of our, our stewardship. So anyway, starting a new series today. It is called Perfect. And so they decided I should be the one to launch it, obviously. <laughs> okay. Um, no, the, the whole idea behind Perfect is that uh, there are certain things that look good from afar but are far from good. And, and there's a picture on the uh, graphic, and it's a picture of a red Mustang with white racing stripes. And the reason why I put that on there is because... Years ago, I used to buy and sell classic cars because I love classic cars, and it was an excuse for me to drive some cool cars, hopefully make a couple bucks on the deal. And one of the cars that I purchased was a 67 Mustang, and I bought it on eBay. Sight unseen except for the pictures that they posted, and it was, uh, it was I think it was on the other side of the country. And so I was the, uh, the winning bidder, and so they shipped this car out to me, and it arrives at my front door. It looks just like the pictures when I look at it up on the truck, and they start to unload it. I open up the driver's door, and it's like, I go, wait a minute. There's something wrong with the door. And so I begin to investigate, and I look, and I look underneath the car, and it becomes very clear that at some point in this car's life, it has been T-boned, crunched in half, and then they tried to uh, kind of, like an accordion, bring it back out and then just kind of patch it together, weld it together, put some Bondo on there, spray it, and call it a day. Now, this is not the car that I was promised. And this car, if you were standing 5, 10, 15, 20 feet, this car looked awesome. But as soon as you got up close, you realized this thing is a disaster. It looked good from afar, but it was far from good. Now, this is true of cars, this is true of houses, this is true of a lot of things, but I think it's especially true of our lives. Is if you look at your life and the way that you portray your life, you oftentimes try to make other people believe that your life is better than it really is. And here's how I know this is true. It's because we just finished up Christmas and I received tons of Christmas cards from you guys. Thank you, by the way. I love seeing them, but you don't look like that. We get, and I do it too, it's ridiculous, and there's these pictures, and I go, whoa, that's our family? I wish that were our family, because that's not what we look like. In fact, if you go on your Instagram, your Facebook, whatever social media, you look on those pages, and your life is an adventure. You have been on some dream vacations. You look fantastic. And the neighborhood that you live in, and the car that you drive, man, you should be on a magazine cover, because it looks awesome awesome. Now, just like that car, that's just paint. That's Bondo. That's what the exterior looks like. But if you get a little bit closer, you start to look underneath the surface of your life, you're going to very quickly realize things are not what they seem. Because that dream vacation that you went on, let's be honest, you were sick the whole time and your kids fought and it was miserable and you couldn't wait to get home. In the car that you drive, in the neighborhood that you live in, it is costing you way too much. You can't afford it. It's a disaster. And those pictures that you have, there's a lot of filters and fillers in that picture. Because <laughs> we know that that's not how you wake up in the morning. That's not what your family looks like. So here's a question I want to ask. Why do we do this? Why do we try to pretend like we are something we are not, that we are better, that we are the perfect family, that we are the perfect person? What is it about us that continues? It's true of all of us. We want to portray ourselves as better than we really are. This week I was listening to a uh, 
an interview by a famous comedian, and this person has been very successful in their career. They have tons of people who come to their shows. They've made lots of money. People want their autograph. And there was this interesting moment in which, while they were being interviewed, they described how they would go from these big performances, and they would drive home, and they would walk through their front door, shut it, and begin to cry. And they would ask this question. I think this is the question. She would ask, am I enough? Am I enough? There's this deep insecurity that I think all of us have, and it drives us to try to pretend like we are something we're not, in which we wonder, are we enough? Like, are we worthy? Are we okay? I think all of us have this whisper, this doubt, this fear inside that continues to drive us, and we wonder... Am I somebody? Am I, am I worthy? If you have never felt that insecurity or you can't remember feeling it, just try public speaking for one time. That's it. Try public speaking and you will realize it will highlight every insecurity that you have in your life. Monday morning after I've spoken on a weekend, I am a disaster. I feel so insecure. I just go, oh, why did I say that? Why are you so chubby? Why did you do I just, it's a mess. My wife is just like, oh, God, this is, you just need to get over it, okay? Go eat a cheeseburger and be done with this already. Because I am just so full of insecurities because I just feel like, oh, my gosh, thousands of people have seen how dumb I really am. And see, even if you're not a public speaker, I'm sure that there is something in your life in which you feel that as well. There are those moments in which you go, am I, am I a good parent? Have I done enough in my career? Have I made enough money? Do people like me? Have I achieved anything with my life? Or am I just, am I kind of wasting it? No matter who you are and what you have done, I can almost guarantee that you ask this question in one form or another throughout your life. So here's what happens, is because we have these deep insecurities, we go out there and we try to prove ourselves. We try to prove our worth. We are going to show the world, we're going to show ourselves, we're going to prove that we are somebody. And so we go out there and we try to make ourselves known. We try to achieve, we try to accomplish, we try to acquire. We are going to show people that we are somebody. Here's the question I have, is how do you determine if you're good enough? Like, what's your gauge? Let me ask you another way. Um, how do you keep score in life? How do you know if you are winning or losing at the game of life? See, I think here's what happens is all of us ask the question, so we go out there and we try to prove ourselves, and then the way that we keep score is how we're doing in comparison to everybody else around us. We go, okay, I know there's something not right with me, and I'm not quite who I want to be, and I'm not there yet, and, I, and something's not okay, and so the way that I'm going to Convince myself I am okay as if I'm doing better than the people around me. But here's how I, uh, here's how I know this. Is this last couple weeks, um, after all the Christmas Eve services, my family, we went out to this uh, friend's ranch. And this ranch is in the middle of nowhere. There is nobody around. I don't have to see anybody if I don't want to. It takes 20 minutes just to go uh, to civilization. Okay, there is nobody around. And every single day, you know how I knew if it was a successful day, if I had done well that day, if it, if it was a good day, is if I got up and I showered and brushed my teeth. That's it. 
I could look at, thank God bless you. I could look at the, yes, I could look at my day and go, today was a win because I got up and brushed my teeth. Because the only other people around are my family. And my kids, they can't do either without me. And so I am the winner for the day if I'm able to do these two things. Now, as soon as I get back and I'm at work and I'm having to go and, and I'm having to succeed, I'm having to, it's no longer good enough for me to just simply get up, shower, and brush my teeth. I got a lot of responsibilities. I got a lot of stuff. Just like you, you have to go to work. There's people relying on you. There's people who have expectations for you. There's other people who, who you are ending up comparing yourself to. See, the thing that changed just so drastically in one day was that I went from a place where there was no one to compare myself to, to a place in which now I'm comparing myself to everybody around. And I am pushed to continue to try to prove myself. And so... Um, I think this manifests itself in lots of different ways. Recently, because of this uh, trip they were going on and my desire. So I grew up riding motocross. And I love motocross. It was just one of the things I think that kept me out of a lot of trouble. And I want my family to experience something like that. But my wife has said, because of the broken bones that you also get in motocross, that that's not the thing for us. And so uh, I wanted to figure out how do we get a, like It's great getting away, being out in the desert or being out in the forest. And so um, we ended up getting this uh, UTV kind of four-seater thing used that we could try as an entry level out into the forest, okay, and out into riding. And so we find the right one, and I call the guy up, and we go and we look at it, and, and I say, of course, the first question you ask whenever you're going to buy something is, well, how come you're selling it? You know, is there something wrong with it? What's the deal? He says, no, no, it's great. Runs great. Can go anywhere you want it to go. You're going to love it. We've had such a great time. He's talking it up, and I'm thinking, well, why are you getting rid of it, you know? And he says, well, the reason I'm getting rid of it is because all the friends that we go out with into the desert, um, recently they all upgraded. They all purchased like these newer models that are a little bit faster and they can then go some places that maybe I can't go. And, and so I, you know I can't have this machine anymore. In fact, I'm going to get the one that they don't have. I'm going to get the biggest and the baddest one. They're not going to know what hit them. I went, okay. <laughs> uh, just as long as you give me a good price. That's fine, I guess. But... Right, and there was nothing wrong with this machine. It was great. In fact, last year he thought it was awesome until this year when all his friends got new ones. He went, I can't be seen in this. This is ridiculous. I'm embarrassed to even own this thing. Now you go, oh, how shallow. Please, you've done it. We all do it. Right, you remember when the first time you moved out of the house and you had an apartment and you went, this is the best thing ever. This is incredible. Do you see parents anywhere? No, because it's my apartment. I have made it. And then your friends start moving out of apartments into homes, purchasing homes, and you go, oh, I am living in the slums right now. This is unacceptable. And so you buy your first house. You go, that's, that's the best thing ever. And then your friend's house has nine-foot ceilings, and you only have eight. And I don't even, I can't even, I can't even walk in these. I feel like I'm slouching all the time because these ceilings are so low. See, so we were, we, we've all experienced this in which, yeah, we're great until somebody else has something better and we go, well, I've got to have that. Why? Because the way that we keep scoring life is we continue to try to keep up. Think about the last time that you spent quality time with your kids, especially if you have young kids. My bet is it's been a while because you continue to drive carpool to the next place, the next sport, activity, whatever it may be, because the other kids, the other families are doing this, and I don't want my kid to experience less. I don't want people to think that we can't afford it, that we can't do it, that we can't. 
And so we continue to try to schedule every moment of their life. Here's how bad I think the comparison game is for us and how much our, our value and worth is wrapped up in how we are, are doing in comparison to other people is when they have failure, we secretly celebrate. Like that, that time when your kid made the team and theirs did it, and you're like, oh, that's too bad. <laughs> okay, it's genetics. <laughs> Sorry, can't help it. It's how we roll around here. Or when they start to break out and that skin isn't so perfect anymore, or you hear there's some hiccups in their perfect marriage. Okay, at this point in the sermon, here's what I find fascinating. How quiet it got all of a sudden. Now, I've, I can only determine one of two things. Either this is something you do not experience, you never have little victories when people fail, or the moment that I said it, you remembered the last time you did that and are feeling a little bit uncomfortable right now. No? Still uncomfortable. Okay, good. Here, let's go further then. Um, here's how you can really feel good about yourself. is not only when they fail, um, but when you are winning at the same time. Like you walk away from coffee and you go, <laughs> they're so sweet, they're so nice. They could never live in the neighborhood I live in. They could never, oh, Billy, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's be honest here. Come on, you look at them and you go, oh, they can't fit in that outfit. That's too bad, I could. <laughs> you sound shocked right now. As if this is the first time you've heard this before. Hmm, okay, all right. Here's the problem. As if that's not a problem enough. <laughs> is there's no way to win at this game. There's no way to win. When we play this comparison game where we're competing, we're trying to one-up everybody around us, we're, we're seeing our value determined upon how we compare to other people, it's a no-win game. In fact, I got up this morning and I was reading some articles and on the front page of one of the major newspapers, um, there was an article about a very famous, very wealthy young lady who's probably one of the most famous people of her generation. And the whole article was about how she went back to visit her humble beginnings and she said, you know, I wonder if my life would have been better if I had just stayed here. She had everything in the world, all the money, all the success, all the fame, all the recognition, and she thought, you know, if I just stayed in this small town and nobody knew my name, maybe my life would have been a little bit better. See, it's a no-win game. Even the people at the top are going, yeah, it's nothing here. I I'm winning, but it doesn't feel that great. In fact, in those moments when you do feel like you're winning, you're just as full of fear and anxiety and depression because you're afraid you're going to lose it. Or it just simply wasn't enough. There's a... Uh, book in the Bible that addresses this issue. And here's what I love about the scripture. And if you're not a Christian, um, I challenge you to consider this is the Bible was written thousands of years ago, different portions up to, you know, four or 5,000 years ago, uh, maybe. Uh, and the part that we're going to look at today is 3,000 years old, and it understands the human condition better than any psychologist that I've ever heard. That's what I find fascinating about the Bible is it understands us, even in our present day situations and circumstances, that it understands us so well that you look at it and you go, have you been like following me? This is bizarre. So he, the book is Ecclesiastes and it's written by this guy named Solomon. You've probably heard of him before. King Solomon, uh, son of King David, very wealthy, very famous, has more money, has more uh, influence. He's accomplished more than you and I will ever do. He has like hundreds of wives. I mean, the guy has done everything and then some. And as we look at Solomon, not only has he accomplished so much, but he's kind of a, a student of 
humanity. And he looks at human nature and he has some insights and he's incredibly wise. In fact, the scripture says he's the wisest person that ever lived. And here's what he says. He says this in Ecclesiastes 4.4. I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. <laughs> Wait a minute. So what you're saying is um, the reason why we continue to push forward, we, we try to succeed, we try to achieve, that you've watched people, and people do that because they want to one-up their neighbors, because they want what they have, because they're constantly comparing themselves to those around them. And this is kind of the theme of the book. He says, this too is meaningless. And then he goes on to give a perfect illustration. He says, it's like chasing after the wind. Now think about it. Think about chasing after the wind. You can feel the wind. It's something that's there. It's something that's present. You, can, you know that's there, and yet you can never grasp it. You can run after it all day long. You can exhaust yourself, and you know it's there, and yet you can't get a hold of it. He says that's what comparison is like. It's like chasing the wind. There is this goal that you have. If you can be better, if you can have the best, if you can one-up, and yet you will always chase that, and you will never get it. You'll never be able to grasp it. It's no wonder why we constantly find ourselves exhausted and depressed and anxious because all of us have been chasing the wind. And so some of us who are uh, maybe wind chasers a little bit, we look at this and we go, okay, well, Solomon, what do you want me to do? You want me to just sit around? You want me to become a monk? What, what's, what's your recommendation here? And here's what he says. He says, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. He goes, look, I'm Solomon. Do you remember what I've done? Do you remember what I have achieved? No, I'm not saying sit around. In fact, if you sit around and do nothing, you're going to end up self-destructing. You need to go out. You need to work. You were created to be co-creators with God to achieve great things. But if you think that it's going to answer that deep question of are you enough it's going to be like chasing after the wind better one handful of tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind and this is this is true we know this is true is he says you know what would you rather have would you rather have two handfuls of stuff just you've acquired and you've accomplished and you've succeeded and you're constantly going after the next thing or would you rather just have some stuff accomplished a few things but be at peace with yourself and with the world. Well, of course we'd rather be at peace because that's ultimately what we're chasing after. We're not chasing after stuff. We're chasing after fulfillment. We're chasing after peace. And then he gives this story. He says, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless, a miserable business. So he tells a story. He says, you know, there's a really successful guy that I know, and he's been working his whole life, constantly chasing the next goal, constantly going after the next win. And he gets to the end of his life, and he's done so much, but it has cost him so much as well. He's felt anxiety and depression, and he gets to the end of his life, and he goes, wait a minute, why was I doing all that? I chased goals. I chased achievement. I was trying to get this, this fulfillment that I was looking for, and it was elusive. I never got there. I never, I never found it. And so as I look back at my life, I never enjoyed the process. I never got to enjoy the accomplishments and, and the successes because 
I was always chasing the next one. He goes, I wasted it. <laughs> it was a waste. I look back at my life, and it's kind of worthless now. And no one's going to enjoy this stuff when I'm gone. And even if they do, I'm not here. And so it's meaningless. And see, I think that this is many of our fears, at least it's mine, is I don't want to look back at the end of my life and go, so that was it? I was chasing this goal that was elusive that I could never get. It was like chasing the wind. I end up exhausted and depressed and fearful, and yet I got nothing in return. So I think what we have to do is if we are chasing after the wind and that's not going to get us where we need to go, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to ask the central question. And I think that is, why do we have these deep insecurities and pains that push us to prove ourselves every single day? And the answer actually came this week from an interesting place for me because I was thinking about this topic and I was reading some books and they were not related at all to this topic. And this secular book by a, a person who's not a Christian, it had nothing to do with Christianity, it was actually a business leadership book, he talked about a correlation between those people who are very successful, high achievers, and growing up with a, uh, in a single-parent household. Now, let me just preface this really quick, is whenever we talk about family of origin issues, especially um, fatherlessness or things like that, I, I get it, it's a sensitive subject. I mean, it's a painful topic for many of us. And yet I think the fact that it is so painful and sensitive, even just to mention it, is kind of proving his point. And, and let, me, let me kind of show you what he was saying. He says, you know, we've all heard about the consequences of growing up in a single-parent household, especially um, without a father. You have economic and social uh, disadvantages. Oftentimes, um, you're more likely to end up in prison. But he said there's also this weird correlation between being very successful and growing up without a father. If you look in almost every arena, you will find that there's a disproportionate amount of people who are extremely successful in that arena and grew up without a father. And he gives a couple examples, one of which is um, a third of the U.S. presidents grew up without fathers. And in fact, there was a study done where 45% of people whose achievements have been listed in the encyclopedia lost a parent by age 20. He says, isn't that weird that these people have all become very high-achieving people because they don't have one of their parents, especially their father? There is something about growing up fatherless or at least in a single-parent household that has pushed these people to be the best at whatever they do. If you look at sports, if you look at politics, if you look at business, if you even look at crime, you will find this statistic to be true. And so I started to think about, why does this happen? What pushes these people to do this? And the answer came from a very surprising place for me. I'm a child of the 90s. I grew up in the 90s, and so I ha all my favorite shows were from the 90s, the ones that I got to watch after school, and one of my favorite shows was Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Oh, you're familiar with it. It's a good show. Thank you. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, it's a great show. And I remember this episode, and I was reading about it and it reminded me of this. I remember this episode, and I looked it up, 1994, and usually it's a lighthearted show. It's funny. It's Will Smith. It, it, it's, uh, it, it's, um, it's pretty entertaining, and yet they'll have these moments in which they'll get really it really focused, really intense, really serious because they're trying to prove a point. And one of the most serious moments was when Will 
was preparing to go on an adventure with his father. And the background story is Will didn't know his father, had no relationship with him. He pops back into his life, says we should go and, and you know, bond once again. And so he makes them all these promises. And so the day that they're supposed to leave, the dad doesn't show up. He has abandoned him once again. This is what his whole life has been like. He's lived without a father. His father made promises. His father now is gone. And so there's this really intense, dramatic moment in which Will realizes that his father has abandoned him, and he is standing there with his uncle, and here's what he says. He says, I'm going to get through college without him. I'm going to get a great job without him and marry me a beautiful honey and have me a bunch of kids, and I'm going to be a better father than he ever was. And then he chokes up, begins to cry, and says, how come he don't want me? See, I think that this is where our answer lies, is what happened in this scene is he has lost his relationship with his father, which created deep insecurities within him that he is not enough, and so his response is, I will go out and I will prove my worth. Now, this isn't, of course, just true of those of us who have grown up in a single-parent household. This is true of each one of us. We all have that deep insecurity. We all have that desire to go out and to prove ourselves. Where does this come from? Well, Galatians 4.4, Paul writes, he says, When the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. So we just, we just went through Christmas, and this is what he's talking about. He says, you know, God had this perfect time in which he was going to send Jesus into the world. To those, and he says, born under the law. Now, if you're not a church person, born under the law, you have no idea what this means. Even if you are a church person, you're yeah, kind of uh, fuzzy on the whole deal. Is what he's saying here is he's saying, whether you know this or not, whether you're a Christian, whether you even believe in God or not, whether you've read the Bible, the Ten Commandments, it doesn't matter. Each one of you were born under God's law. That there is a law that supersedes all other laws, and you were born accountable to God's law. Now, you think, well, I've never read the Bible. I don't know God's law. No, you know God's law. Intuitively, every single person in the world knows God's law. It's crazy. Now, check this out. Uh, have, you ever, have you ever thought about the fact that you know what you should and should not do? Like, everybody knows that. In fact, everyone in the world doesn't have to be told what they should or should not do. They know, hey, murder's wrong. We shouldn't do that. There is something in, in us that we go, I know what I should and I shouldn't do. And yet there is also this part of us that goes, but I don't do it. I know what I should do, I know what I shouldn't do, and yet I don't even follow my own rules. See, the scripture says that the fact that you know what you should and shouldn't do is because God wrote his law on your heart. You don't have to have read the Bible to understand what God's law is. And the fact that you don't do it is because of this thing called sin. Now, we will oftentimes admit that we know what we should do and that we don't do it. It, it, it usually sounds like this, is nobody's perfect, right? You ever said somebody, you ever heard somebody say that? Maybe you've said it yourself. It's, oh, come on, nobody's perfect. You know what you're admitting in that moment? Some, actually, some pretty deep philosophical stuff in that moment. You're saying there is a perfect, God's law. I know what it is, and I break it. I am a God-law-breaking person. Woo! <laughs> but here's, here's the consequence of this. Is we know what God's law is. We know that we don't live up to it. And the consequence of it is that our relationship with our creator has been broken. 
And if it is true that a loss of relationship between you and your parent creates these deep insecurities and desires to prove yourself, can you imagine what it does to you when you have lost your relationship with your heavenly father? See, the reason why all of us get up asking every single day if we are enough, if we are okay, and we continue to try to prove that we are, is because we have become cosmic orphans. We have lost our relationship with our heavenly father. But this is why it's so important what Paul says next. He says, God sent his son to redeem those under the law. It says Jesus was sent into the world, and then he uses this phrase, redeem. And redeem means to buy back, to win back, to regain what has been lost, is to reunite or rejoin something that has been broken or separated. And so the reason why Jesus was sent is so that we could be, in plain terms, reconciled with our Heavenly Father. That broken relationship could be mended. And he ends with, so that we might receive adoption to sonship, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. A lot of us have heard the gospel message before that we are sinners and we need to be reconciled with God and Jesus came, died on the cross, resurrected so that we could have that relationship mended. And we think the whole reason is because of sin and we will forgive us of our sins and we'll be able to go to heaven one day, which is true, totally true, awesome. But there's something bigger than that. There's something more practical than that as well. And Paul points it out here. He says, you know, Jesus came back not so that you could be forgiven your sins and go to heaven when you die. He came back so that you could be brought into God's family as his son or daughter. That you have been alienated from your heavenly father and you can now become an heir. See, this has some really practical implications. And let me see if I can illustrate what this means is I, uh, I have three kids, and I am a very imperfect father. You ask them, they will tell you the same. <laughs> and yet, there is a gift that I, I wish and I try and I'm intentional about trying to give them, is I want them to be able to see themselves the way that I see them. If they could just simply see the, them the way that I see them, it will help them avoid so much pain and heartache and insecurity. Because here's what I know, and I already see it, is when my little girl looks in the mirror, there will be a time when she goes, ah, am I pretty? Is anyone going to like me? Is anyone going to love me one day? And in that moment, I just want her to hear my voice saying, honey, are you kidding me? You are incredible. You are so beautiful. You are perfect just the way that you are. I don't want you to ever even have to ask that question. And there will be a day when my boys, they wonder, I wonder if, I wonder if daddy's proud of me. And in that moment, I want them to hear, son, oh, you are so enough. You don't have to prove yourself to me. You are my child. Are you kidding me? Of course, I am incredibly proud of you. And yeah, there's going to be those moments in which it, they're going to disappoint me and I'm going to have to encourage them and I'm going to have to push them to be better and I'm going to have to help them become who God made them to be. But you know what is never going to happen? I will never love them less and I will never look at another child and go, I wish that were my child instead. That is never going to happen. 
I don't care what they do. There will never be a moment in which I look at them and I look at other children and I go, I wish that those were my kids instead. Never. And you know why it is that I will never do that? It's not because they're perfect. It's not because they don't need to improve. It's not because they don't have things that they need to fix in their lives. Of course they do. It's because they're mine. They're my kids. Those are my kids. I will always love those kids. There will be, there will be nothing that they can do to separate our relationship, to break that, to, to stop me from loving them. Now, if this is true of me and of you, the way that you view your kids, and we're messed up and we're imperfect and, and we're full of just nastiness, if that's true of you and I, can you imagine how true it is of your heavenly father? That when he looks at you, he doesn't go, oh, man, I wish you were somebody else. Man, I wish you were more like your next door neighbor. I wish you could keep up with those people around you. No. He looks at you the way that you look at your kids and he goes, oh, come on. Are you kidding me? No. Stop even asking that question. Stop trying to, no. I love you so much. You know why? Because you're mine. Yeah, you're imperfect, you're imperfect, and yeah, we're going to work on some stuff, and yeah, I'm going to help you grow, and i help you become who I created you to be, but I don't want you to ever question if you're enough. I am so proud of you. Can you imagine if you got to lay in bed at night, and as you remember all the interactions you had throughout the day, and the things that you did and you didn't do, and you think about all the relationships that you have, instead of you going, ah, gosh, I'm such a failure today. I didn't do as much as they did. I didn't accomplish what other people are accomplishing. I feel so behind in life right now. What if you got to lay there and go, no, I'm okay today. That's no, fine. Yeah, yeah, maybe they did more than me today. But you know what I did? I was faithful. I got up this morning and I said, God, I want to be at the center of your will. And then I just worked as hard as I could to do whatever I felt like he wanted me to do. And if, if other people did more, that's okay because you know where the win is? The win is not in comparison. The win is always in faithfulness. And so, here's my prayer for, for myself and, and for you as well, is that this week, as this doubt and this insecurity and this fear begins to seep in, and you want to start to look around and compare and go, am I okay? Am I okay? And Stop and go, no, 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 no. No. What God is telling you in that moment is you are fine because you are mine. And so you need to stop comparing and simply be faithful. And that's enough. Let's pray. Lord God, I know that I, uh, I get up every day and I battle with the insecurity and the, the wanting to prove myself and wanting to m make people proud of me and wanting to feel like I am enough and yet... I know it's never going to be, I know it's never, it's like chasing the wind. I'm never going to accomplish. I'm never going to succeed. I'm never going to be able to find that satisfaction. And so, Lord God, I want to stop playing that game. I want to get off that roller coaster. And I want to just simply know that I'm enough because I am yours. And I just want to be right at the center of your will. Whatever that may be, whatever I might do, whoever I might become, it is enough. Because you are my heavenly father. And so, Lord God, I pray that becomes a reality for us this week that it would move from my head into my heart because I know it to be true and yet I don't feel it to be true. And I know that there are so many people in this room who are the same way. And so, Lord, let this become a reality within our hearts that we are enough because we are yours. 
Lord, we love you. We thank you. In his name we pray. Amen.